morning. My name is Mary Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to be sober. And I want to, I want to first of all thank you for inviting me to be a participant in the, in the conference. I was, uh, I was here in Houston last year uh, working for the, for the restaurant that I work for. Opened up a, a store here in, in Houston, and I was uh, privileged to come down here and help get it started. And, uh, and so many people were so nice to me in, uh, in AA, uh, and came from long distances and dragged me around to meetings and took me places. And I, I'm so I'm, I'm very grateful that. Uh, to be back here again because I have such a nice, uh, a nice feeling about Houston. And just in case you're interested, the Los Angeles Times says that the Houston economy is perking up. That was a front page headlines in <laughs> Los Angeles Times on my way down here yesterday. So I bring you good news from Los Angeles. Um, I want to get this out of the way too right away because I know that it's your custom and I don't want to, uh, I want to go along with the customs. My sobriety date is August 4th, 1969. That's the day of my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I went to that meeting sober and I have not had a drink or a mind-affecting chemical since that day and that's not like me because I never do anything right and if I do do something right it's after several false starts so uh, I believe that, that I was, uh, I was uh, given a gift that day I, uh, certainly uh, the speaker last night talked about, uh, about un- did not, it has nothing to do with deserving it I didn't earn it, it just, it just uh, I just got it somehow I, I, I've never really been able to figure it out except that last day, that morning, August 4th, when I woke up, I was sick, but I was sick almost every day of my life uh, for a long, long time. I mean, sick. I mean, we're talking running sick. You know, when you just sit there and think you're just going to run out your own hind end, I was like that every day for a long, long time we're talking sick. And I was ashamed of myself, but I had been ashamed of myself many, many times because I'm the sort of person that makes a lot of noise and gathers a crowd. And so I had... Uh, <laughs> I had, I had been ashamed of myself on many, many occasions. Uh, but I was just so tired that day. It's, it's hard for me to talk about it because what happens when I start to talk about it, I just want to lay my head down for a minute because I can still sort of get that awful, exhausted feeling I had that day. I was absolutely out of everything, out of my own ideas, out of anybody to blame. There was nobody around to blame anymore. Uh, my parents were, were away, and I had somehow convinced them that I was getting along all right. I had finally become financially solvent. I wasn't by any means wealthy, but I was current. Uh, my last boyfriend and I had broken up, and I wasn't even sad about it anymore. There was nothing, nothing to blame, nobody to, to point at. Uh, uh, nobody was on my case. I was just absolutely out of my own ideas, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So I did what I've done all my life. I went to work, because I'm a worker. I, if I can get out of bed, and I'm not locked up somewhere, I go to work. And I went to work, and I was cleaning off a table in the restaurant where I was working, and uh, the thought occurred to me, why don't you try AA? And I have not drank from that day to this. And uh, I'll tell you uh, a little bit about what led up to that. Um, I, uh, I'm, uh, and also another vital statistic, I'll get out of the way, because I always want to know this. I'm 47 years old. I always want to know how old people are. And, uh, and in lieu of a facelift, I pull my hair back real tight. When <laughs> And uh, uh, I was born in Volga City, Iowa. And uh, my, uh, I, I have uh, an unusual family name. Uh, my real name is Marianne Looney. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was, uh, uh, all my life I've been terribly self-obsessed. Now, an un- unusual name is, is just that, and everybody notices it. But they don't spend the rest of their life thinking about it. Uh, 
But I thought, I, that was my earliest, I, so far as I can see, and I want to get this out of the way too, I have examined my case and approached it from every angle, believe me, I have studied myself. <laughs> Drunk, sober, before drinking, I have studied myself. And the conclusion that I have come to is that all the problems that I had, the, re, the reactions to the problems that I had, which caused my personality disorder, stem from two things. I had a funny last name and I had irregular menstrual periods. And as far as I can see, <laughs> those are truly, truly the things that bothered me the most and the things to which I was always reacting no matter what I was doing. And uh, if I may quote a man named Don G, I have never had a problem as serious as the solution I used for it. Uh, uh, so here I am in Northeast Iowa with a funny last name and a bad attitude, and, uh, and I uh, embark on life. And uh, I had a lot of good luck in many ways. I grew up in, uh, I spent most of my life in a little town called Old Wine, Iowa, before I, before I moved west and uh, to California. And uh, uh, I'm glad for that. It was a small town. We all knew each other. I had parents. Uh, I had grandparents. I had aunts and uncles that I knew. And then my life got even a little bit smaller because I, after the sixth grade, I went to a small Catholic school. And so I had uh, constraints on me, natural constraints. Everybody was, was doing it or not doing it. And uh, I am just old enough that I come from an era when we pressured each other to behave. And so I didn't really start uh, any kind of a really wild life until I was out of high school and started drinking. What I did was I always tried to appear rather wicked. See, I felt so foolish and silly all my life that, and I've always been sort of a compromiser, and many people who feel foolish and silly rise above it by climbing to great academic heights or, or by amounting to something. I compensated for my feeling silly by trying to appear wicked, and I wore low-slung Levi's and wore my hair in a ducktail and, uh, and, uh, and wore Levi jackets. I, I laugh at $90 Levi jackets now. I used to go down to Sam's Clothing and buy one for three bucks. and. Uh, and, and I started smoking Pall Mall cigarettes when I was 13 years old, and inhaling too, I might add. I, uh, half measures are not going to get me anywhere. I started sucking those Pall Malls when I was 13 or 14 years old, and uh, and and I talked. I, I I used bad language. They always say that uh, they, uh, uh, people are want to say that uh, uh, cursing is an indication of a bad vocabulary, and I don't believe that at all because I have a very good, and I've always had quite an extensive vocabulary, especially for my education. Uh, and one thing I know is the power of words. And uh, swear words can be mighty powerful. They can make a silly-feeling little twerp with no boobs in irregular menstrual periods feel tough and brave and strong. And uh, so this is how I started shaping myself. <laughs> now you can see why I needed a drink by the time I was 18. This is not to say that I never had anything to drink when I was a kid, but. Uh, I never had enough alcohol to have it do anything for me. I, I went out on a date one night when I was 14 or 15 years old with an older boy of 18 in the service. He was a serviceman, and I think I drank a can of beer that night. And, but it frightened me. What was going on around me scared me. Because uh, uh, I've always lived a, kind of two ways. I've always wanted to be a good Catholic and prayed for stigmata. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, on the other hand, I wanted to be wicked, so I've been in conflict most of my life. And, uh, it's, uh, and uh, when I got out of high school, I went off to a hairdressing academy. Now, uh, I have no, absolutely no talent whatever for hairdressing. I had wanted to be a movie star. But I also knew how one became a movie star. One was discovered. 
and uh, I uh, was not dis I hadn't gotten discovered uh, by the I guess the talent scouts passing through O line had just missed me somehow, and uh, and uh, I had and so I had to get a career, and uh, I didn't know how to do anything. Now, I have a rather high IQ, not remarkably so, but I I think it was remar it was uh, in comparison to the way I behaved. My I, I should have acted better. Uh, according to what, what showed up on these IQ tests, I should have behaved myself better than I was behaving or amounted to more than I was. But I really have no aptitude for anything. I'm one of those people I can talk and, uh, and sort of I can discuss things at length and wax philosophical, but I can't do a damn thing. So, uh, <laughs> and so I had to figure out a way to make a living. And so uh, my mother had been a hairdresser, and so uh, I went off to this hairdressing academy. And uh, when I was there, uh, uh, the, I got drunk for the first time. And how that happened was I was invited out on a, on a blind date. There was an, a woman there a little bit older than I was, and she and her boyfriend knew a man that they thought I might like. Now, I will, I have to, uh, I've got to say this, too, because it does carry over into every phrase of my life. I've never been popular with boys. Now, that doesn't mean they don't like me, but they always like somebody else better. And it's been that way all my life, and it is that way today, and it's all right today, 99% of the time. I met a fellow in Hawaii I kind of liked last year, but that's another story. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for the most part, uh, uh, I've been comfortable with that. But it, when I was younger, it, wasn't, it was more difficult. But somebody fixed me up on this blind date, and away we went. And these people were a little bit older than I was, so drinking was going to be a part of the evening. And, you know, we went out and we had a few drinks, and uh, Iowa at that time had these weird liquor laws, so drinking in Iowa was a very gracious thing. You, somebody carried a bottle in their purse, and you went in and ordered setups, you know, a glass of 7-Up or what have you, and then you poured your drink into it. And uh, so we had a couple of drinks, and I remember telling the woman, uh, uh, the other woman, that, uh, you know, I'm not used to drinking, and if we're going to go out to eat, maybe we better do it now, because I and beginning to feel this. And so she told somebody else that. Now that sounds sensible, doesn't it? That certainly sounds like a young woman who knows herself and is going to go well in this world. And what happened was this. I, that little click that every alcoholic knows happened to me somewhere along that night. And I went from being somebody out for the evening to a drunken, crazy woman, just like that, just like that. And I remember that first drunk almost as if it happened last night. And that is that I knew what I was doing. I wasn't in a blackout. I knew what I was doing. I knew that my behavior was inappropriate at best, and I knew that I was going to regret it. And I kept on drinking anyway. And I, I suppose that I became powerless over alcohol from that moment on. I guess that's about as good a description as I can give you, is that I was powerless. I knew what I was doing. I knew it wasn't right. I knew I was going to be sorry, and I did it anyway, because I, didn't, I couldn't do anything else. And I kept drinking until I was physically stopped, because I got sick. And because the people who were with me, I became less cute as the evening progressed. There's a line in the book that I can remember when I first read it, it hit me. There's a lot of things in the book that hit me, but I'm still reading that book and still saying, when did they put that in there? Uh, but at, uh, at the time that I read this, it had an impact on me, and it says something to the effect that the alcoholic is rarely mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. And that applies to me. I only had an 11-year drinking career, but it was characterized by the fact that most of the time when I was drinking, I was more or less insanely drunk, obviously so, and yet it took me 11 years to stop because I always, always, always said to myself, this time it's going to be different. This time it's going to be different. I can remember 
When I was a young girl living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the big city, and I would walk down to, uh, uh, to Ruffin's Tap every night on 2nd Street, and every night I would say that same prayer, please God, don't let me make a fool out of myself tonight. Night after interminable night, I was going to a old man's beer bar and drinking and praying on the way that I wouldn't make a fool out of myself. And that is the way I lived all the, for those years, hoping somehow, and not hoping, believing, believing that somehow, some way, I was going to learn to control and enjoy this because although alcohol has always given me problems, it has always done one thing for me. During some part of any time that I was drinking, I would have some peace. I would have some relief from the terrible burden of being me because I have disliked myself and loathed myself and been embarrassed about myself since I was old enough to have feelings. I have disliked myself intensely. And uh, when I drank, I would have a brief period of time where that didn't matter, where I didn't, if people were looking at me, I didn't care. It's a funny thing about a personality like mine, and I, I don't believe that I'm alone in this. I could be looking fairly normal and feel so weird and so out of place and so odd and just my guts would be tied in a knot. And I probably on the outside didn't look that different from anybody. I've looked like this most of my life except for the gray hair and the crow's feet. This is what I've looked like all my life and I don't think that, that there's anything remarkable about the way I look. But yet when I was not drinking, when I was a young girl, I was tied up in a knot almost all the time about are they looking at me? What are they thinking? Are they laughing at me? And uh, yet when I was drunk, I could behave in the most bizarre manner, but there would be that little inner core of peace where nothing mattered. And uh, so I drank because it wasn't a very good answer, but it was the best answer I could come up with. Now I graduated from that hairdressing academy because I am never, I am a person who can't succeed at anything, but neither can I completely fail, which is really, I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't drink for any longer than I did, because I never could completely give in. So I was exhausted all the time from this interminable struggle, this interminable struggle to suit up and show up one more day. I, had, I remember that uh, the only time drinking ever looked good to me was one time when an old boyfriend of mine, I got saddled with him and some of his companions one night after I was sober as a favor to his mother. And there just were bums, absolute unmitigated bums. I took the little bit of money I had downstairs and gave it to my landlady because I did not trust these guys not to steal from me. And this was my old boyfriend. Uh, uh, but there was something about their freedom. They were absolutely free. There's that kind of freedom that I guess Clancy talks about it, that the guys down on Skid Row don't commit suicide because there's no pressure on them anymore. And I never got to that stage. I, I would get up so sick and just pull my, it'd be painful to put my clothes on, but I would have to try and go out one more day and earn a living because I had been brought up to believe that it was my responsibility to support myself. And so I would go out there and try to earn a living every day and just be so sick and not be able to give in. Uh, my career in uh, Iowa, if you know anything about uh, the Midwest, I went from Wine to Waterloo to Cedar Rapids down to Marengo, so already you know I'm not moving upwards because uh, Cedar Rapids is a big city and Marengo is a little bitty town down there by the Amana colonies, but see, I was looking for something. I met a lady at a convention or something, a hairdressing convention, and she took a shine to me, 
and I didn't go to work for her really because of the work. I went to work for her because I thought she could maybe fix me. I was looking for someone, something to fix me. Uh, I, uh, I started to drink, and uh, it's a little early in the morning really to belabor this, but I am one of those people who gets a few beers in me and I fall in love. And I might fall in love right now, right here. And so I was a, I, I had a lot of conflict there too because on one hand I'd been the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Christmas pageant. <laughs> I'm going to say this real quick because it'll probably embarrass my thoughts, but this is the way, this is the way it was when I was drinking. I would either not French kiss because it's a mortal sin or I would sleep with five guys in the same night. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So I had, needless to say, had a lot of conflict, and uh, uh, I was looking for someone to fix me, and I thought maybe this woman could help me, because she seemed to understand me, and she had had a baby, a, a little girl that had died when she was about three years old, and I think that she, and I'd seen a picture of this baby, it looked a little bit like I did when I was a baby, so I imagine maybe she had some kind of an interest like that in me. I'm not a person that nobody cared about or nobody wanted to help. I, I've heard some real sad stories in AA about drunken parents and lonely, terribly lonely, friendless lives, and that is not my story. People tried to be good to me. I remember when I finally moved to Las Vegas, where people are mean sometimes, I had to comb the streets to find people to treat me bad, and then I had to push them beyond their endurance. People wanted to be good to me. Uh, But I never, I never, I never could really let anything work for me. Uh, I don't know whether it was, uh, whether I didn't want to or I just couldn't help it. I, I, ha I assumed that I was doing the best that I could do. Uh, and I, uh, after I was in Marengo, I went back to Waterloo for a while and then I went to Independence and then I went back to Cedar Rapids and then I ended up back home living with my mom and dad. That was after three years of drinking and I was completely out of everything already. And I had to go back home and live with mom and dad. And what happened then is things got a little bit better for me. I found a job that I liked outside of hairdressing. I was never a good hairdresser, never really liked it. And I found a job and, 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 and I really enjoyed it. I went to work for the Elks Club in my hometown and uh, I did a little bit of everything. I helped get food ready, I served the food, I cleaned up after, I was a bartender, I mean uh, mixing drinks and serving them and what have you. I just did a little bit of everything and I liked the job and I was pretty good at it and people liked me. And the only thing was that every once in a while, I'd have to get a little drunky poo and blow the soot out. And uh, like I say, I can gather a crowd and I can do some pretty bizarre things. And my dad was waiting up for me one night and uh, he uh, told me this. He said, you know, you can live any way you want to, but if you're going to live here at home with us, you have to live in such a way that you're not an embarrassment to us. Your mother is uh, worried about you. Your brother is a nervous wreck. I had a, uh, have a younger brother. And I was very, very fond of him, and I had taken him into my confidence. And at that time, I was going with a married man, and uh, I was sharing this with my 12-year-old brother. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, uh, and he said, you know, your brother's in, uh, all torn up because he, doesn't, he feels loyalty to you, and he also feels a loyalty to us. And I knew what my dad was talking about. I knew that the behavior he objected to took place when I was drunk. Now that is not the same thing as conceding to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic, but it was good enough that I stopped drinking for a while. Now first I, I, uh, I uh, uh, cut down. And by the way, if you are, just in case you have never tried cutting down, don't, if you're drinking or if you're thinking about drinking, don't try the cutting down method. It is so dreary. 
I cannot imagine why anybody would drink who wouldn't want to at least get a little drunk, for God's sake. Uh, but I took on this three-drink-an-evening situation until it just became so, such an exercise of futility that I quit drinking entirely for about six months, and I moved to Las Vegas. And three days after I moved to Las Vegas, I uh, started to drink. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, they talk about the progression of alcoholism, and I, I can only tell you that I had drank for a while back there in Iowa, and certainly some bad and embarrassing and humiliating things had happened to me, but I'd never got beat up. I went to Las Vegas, and after I started to drink, within two months' time, I'd got beat up twice. Uh, once, some guy just really just beat the hell out of me, and one other time I got in one of those sicky-poo situations with the twisted-up coat hangers and the cigarette burns, and it was just a bunch of, we were just a bunch of friends out for the evening, and one thing led to another, and, uh, and uh, then I ended up in an insane asylum, and uh, not really an insane asylum, the county hospital mental ward, but they kept me there a month. The average day, stay for people at that was about three or four days, but there was a core of us that they kept on. And we, I know what the Thorazine shuffle is. Uh, you know, back in the 60s, the early 60s, they were doing shock treatments and drug therapy. Thank God my doctor liked drugs and not electroshock therapy because I, I know my sponsor was strong and he withstood 48 shock treatments. And I have a friend who's a writer who withstood 18 shock treatments or something. I don't know. I'm a kind of, I'm a little avopated at best. Uh, I'm kind of, uh, I hate to use this word about myself, but I've had to work very hard not to be a dingbat. I just, I don't mean to be, but, but I am really one of those rather, I, I, without ever wanting to be at all, I'm one of those rather fluttery, absent-minded women who, uh, and I've been like that all my life, so I'm just as glad I got the Thorazine instead of the electric shock treatments, and, uh, but I took this Thorazine and shuffled up and down the hall, and, uh, and you know, I will say this about that, the psychiatrist there liked me and understood me and wanted to help me. I believed that then and I believe it today. But he could not, and I believe that he understood me. I believe he understood my case, but I'll tell you how he approached it. We're going to get this thing settled. We're going to find out what's the matter with you. You will be able to look at it and see what's wrong with you and then you will change. Surprise! When I look at things myself, it becomes very painful. And what happens when the pain gets too strong is I have an answer for it. I drink a shot of whiskey, and then I have another shot of whiskey, and by the third shot of whiskey, I can twist that around to where I think it's kind of cute. And so that's, the, that's how well the psychotherapy worked for me. Uh, I left Las Vegas in uh, 1965, and I moved to Southern California, and I've lived there ever since. Uh, I went to work in taverns. I, I, every once in a while when I have a, you know, I've been sober in my group for about 18 years now, and uh, uh, I know that people know that I drank, but I think that they don't, sometimes it's hard to believe that anybody really did, you know that they did those things, but you figure it couldn't have been quite like that. And every once in a while I drive someone by some of the taverns that I used to work in and show them some of the joints where I ran around half naked, uh, disporting myself for my clients. And, uh, that was another thing I was a failure at too. You have never seen anybody look any sillier than me in a little bathing suit or a leotard scampering about trying to look seductive. I will never forget till the day I die. I was working in a, in a topless bar and uh, that's another thing. I work in a place now with mostly young people and they think that I'm, I'm sort of uh, the resident old maid waitress there. And uh, they play this song, Wooly Bully, and that's the girls used to like. I was not a topless dancer there. 
the, I was the waitress, but the girls used to like to dance to Wooly Bully, and I can still see them up there uh, when I hear the song Wooly Bully. And these kids don't believe that I could have ever worked in a place like that. But I was working in this bar, and until the dancing girls came on, we were supposed to entertain the clients by scampering about a bit and dancing and whirling. And uh, I'm not a very good dancer either. I, my intentions are to be a good dancer, but it's something, always goes, something always goes awry. And I was kind of scampering and dancing about and pouring this guy's beer, and I, was, I can't do two things at once that well. The beer, I wasn't noticing. I was so busy thinking about my flashing feet that the beer was going all over the... Uh, table and he handed me a dollar and he said here honey put this in your retirement fund because I think it's coming up a lot sooner than you think <laughs> I could laugh about that today but just barely <laughs> um, and you know I had I, I want to get off of this drunk log and, and talk a little bit about recovery because we all know how to drink here I would I would imagine that there isn't anybody in here who doesn't already know how to drink and uh, some of it was funny in the retelling. It's, it's funny, but for the most part, even my bizarre episodes didn't get me here. It was that awful underlying emptiness and that I've had some moments of clarity before I, before I uh, uh, stopped drinking. I can remember standing in front of a slot machine in Las Vegas, and my hair was, I, I, I think I was, I was not drunk. I was probably had one of those terrible hangovers that I used to get when I was younger where I just couldn't drink. And I, I, I can remember saying to myself, if you're such a hot little number, how come you're standing here playing this slot machine all by yourself so that nobody ever calls you up? And it was like that, really, that awful loneliness and uh, that all alcoholics know about that. And that question, I don't, I'm sure that everybody else in this room at one time or another has asked themselves this question, and it was a question that I've asked myself all my life. What the hell's the matter with me? What's wrong with me? And uh, that's primarily what got me here, was that terrible loneliness. Because at the end of my drinking, I had a little bit of money. I had, I had a job as a waitress. I'm a waitress today. I don't have a rags-to-riches story. I, uh, I have a moderate-income-to-moderate-income moderate story. I've been, I've been financially solvent for, since 1968, where I haven't had to live hand-to-mouth. And I got sober in 1969. So I had figured out a way to, uh, to earn a living. I was fairly well liked in the job I had. Uh, I, I, like I said, I'd lost my last boyfriend, but it wasn't all that painful anymore. I had some cloth furniture in my house. I didn't have just pretend to gnaw a hide anymore. I had, I'd been able to buy a little furniture, and, and I lived in a fairly nice part of town. And I woke up that morning knowing I couldn't live any longer the way that I was living. And uh, I went to work that day, and, and, uh, and I heard that voice inside my head say, why don't you try AA? And I went home from work that afternoon, and as I was walking from the bus stop, I said to myself, if I'm going to AA tonight, I guess I won't go over to Pete's this afternoon. Well, I had to go over to Pete's every afternoon, because I did get through a work day without drinking, because I went to work at 6 and got off at 2, so I was able by sheer grit and pluck. Don't, don't let anybody tell you that alcoholics don't have willpower. When you have a daily drunk of a waitress who gets up and works the morning shift every day, you have somebody who has willpower. And I was able to get to work every day. But when I got off work, I had to drink. I wouldn't even get out of my uniform because not only did I have to drink, I had to drink in the company of other drinkers because I was so lonely and so afraid by that time that I couldn't be alone until I was absolutely passed out, just semi-passed out. I had to be around other people because I was afraid all the time, just terribly afraid all the time. And, uh, and uh, I didn't drink. 
I somehow or another did not take a drink, and I went upstairs to my apartment, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found out where a meeting was that night. Then I called my mom and dad back in Iowa, and I told them that I was going. I used the word for the first time. I said, I'm pleased that I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to go to an AA meeting tonight. And I was making a commitment. I didn't realize it, but I was, because my parents were not the type of people who were going to, six or seven months later, when they talked to me, say, oh, by the way, did you ever go to that little meeting you said you were going to go to? The phone, the next morning, the next afternoon when I got off work as I was walking in the house, the phone was ringing. Did you go to that meeting last night? How was it? Uh, but I found out where the meeting was. And, you know, I don't know what happened between the time I made those phone calls and going to the meeting. I only know what didn't happen. I didn't drink, I didn't use any drugs, and I didn't go mad. And I was so crazy with anxiety all the time that I used to literally, I'd try not to drink once in a while, I would literally jump up off the sofa and tear across the street and run into that tavern in order to drink because I couldn't stand it. Uh, I went to the meeting that night, and, and uh, I can remember walking from the block from the bus to the meeting and, and wondering what I was getting into, and I walked up the steps to this little house because I finally found what I was looking for. And I still had just enough theatrics left that when I got there, I posed in the doorway. And somebody came up to me, and I said, is this the place? And they said, yes, it is. And then I tripped when I went across the... Because that's what I've been like all my life. I'm one of these people. I make the grand statement. I turn on my heel to walk away, and I let a fart. You know, that's the... Somehow things are never worked out for me the way I intended. And that was one of my last grand gestures, was, uh, is this the place? And then tripping over that balustrade. And I went and sat down in the meeting, and I can remember it seems like the meeting started right away, and they said, are there any alcoholics? And they encouraged me to put up my hand. Are there any newcomers? And they encouraged me to put up my hand. And with that, I started to shake really violently. I mean, shake. And uh, uh, I said, oh, this is ridiculous. I didn't drink that much. And I'm so glad I was in a small meeting, and a lot of the people in there had been, had been sober for a long time, and there were these old-time uh, uh, drinkers. When I got sober... I think that I, I, I've been sober now for 18 years, and I got in on the last of the Jake Leg people. Uh, and uh, uh, there were some of those uh, people still there, and so nobody got very excited about this little bit of shaking I was doing, so I wasn't rushed off to a detox or to a treatment center or to any, and I just sat there and shook. And I'm so glad, and I don't really want to make any statements about anything, but I will say this, I'm glad that I felt every physical discomfort of my getting sober because I appreciate my sobriety, not only for the emotional thing it's done for me, but I can remember what it feels like now to come off of a drunk and to not really know whether you're foot or horseback. I, was, I went to work, I did things that I can remember standing there taking an order at a table and somebody said, I'll have bacon and eggs over easy and I had to think out each word, bacon, and picture it in my mind and then over easy. That's how, and I'm glad, I'm glad that I had that because I really, this is very, very valuable to me on every level, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, because I've been here for the whole time. I have been here for the whole time. Uh, and I got, I shook out my drunk in, in the meetings. And uh, I sat through that meeting, and I didn't remember anything the speaker said, except it was all black and white. There was no gray. And I don't know how that applied to my case. That's just what I remember from his talk. And after the meeting, they surrounded me and uh, gave me a lot of literature, they gave everything. What happened to Joe, what happened to Alice, letter to the alcoholic woman, uh, young people in AA, I was only 29, and uh, everything. The fortune story, the Jack Alexander article, I got it all. And they gave me the big book. Now, like I say, I had a little money, but I hadn't brought any with me. I think at that time the big book was 550, 
and I had only brought enough. I think I put a dollar in the collection plate. So I said, I'll write a check out, because I had money. But I was dressed like a bag person. I had on an old sweater, a pair of jeans, an old dirty pair of tennis shoes, no underwear on. My hair pulled back with a rubber band, granny glasses, and a cheap old plastic purse hanging on my shoulder. I suppose they figured my check wouldn't be worth the paper it was written on. So I said, well, that's okay, dear. You pay us later. And I went home that night. Someone gave me a ride home. And uh, I went upstairs to my apartment. I went to bed, and I read that literature. And I hadn't been able to read in a long time. I was just too frantic, and I couldn't read. And then when I was drunk, I didn't care whether I read or not. But I was able to read and be fascinated by that literature. And then I went to sleep, and I slept the night through. I woke up the next morning to the alarm clock ringing, and that hadn't happened in I don't know how long. So see, already a flip-flop in my personality has taken place. Really, the, the single, that is really the single most dramatic thing that's happened to me in my sobriety was that first 24 uh, hours when I did not take a drink without knowing what I was getting into, that I went to a meeting and sat through it, that I went home and was able to read, and that I was able to sleep a night through. And uh, that is really, I think, probably the most dramatic thing uh, about my sobriety. The rest of my sobriety has been a series of small steps forward and some ba great leaps backward and then forward again. But uh, uh, I believe that sobriety is a gift, but the maintenance of it involves a great deal of hard work. And I'm here to tell you that I have been willing to do that, and I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that in the time that, that's left, about what I have done, because I, uh, I believe... I don't quote anybody else about God because I, I believe that sometimes you with the best intentions can misquote people and God is I believe a very personal thing to us in Alcoholics Anonymous we each have a right to to God as we understand him and uh, one of the things that I prefer to believe uh, and, and I don't think I'm alone in this is that God's grace is available to everyone and that the way to God's grace for me is through me I have to be willing to connect with that grace it's always there for me if I'm willing to do the things that will make me receptive to it and uh, my, my first higher power was, of course, the group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you how I, came, how I realized that without knowing it is that I had terrible attacks of anxiety. Now, I was given a reprieve from them for the first three days. I was so busy shaking out this drunk that I didn't have really any resources left for anxiety. But I, the minute I got a little physical health back, I became very, very anxious. And that was what I was drinking to get away from at the end. I was drinking for one reason and one reason only because I couldn't stand the way I felt when I was sober. And the way I felt when I was sober was really what Tom was describing, how we were going to feel if we didn't go to the 3.30 meeting. That level of anxiety that grows and grows until it's just a horrendous distress. And that came back after I got sober. But I'll tell you what, I finally realized something, and that was that when I was in the meeting, I wasn't that afraid. And what would happen is, during the course of the day, when I would get terribly afraid, I would be able to conjure up the awareness that when I was in the meetings, I wasn't afraid. And I would become willing to live until I could get to the meeting again that night and so not be afraid again. So I was, without realizing it, acknowledging that there was a power greater than myself that would be able to restore me to sanity. And that was the group. When I was with them, I felt safe. Now, I didn't get a sponsor right away. I did have a woman that was very, very kind to me, and her name was Maish. And I will be forever grateful to Maish because she had many things that I admired that I had long since given up ever, ever trying to achieve. She had a grace and a poise about her. Uh, it seemed to me that she always wore uh, sort of like a diaphanous kind of gown. Now, I'm sure she didn't. I'm sure she just had on regular clothes. But she seemed to me to have on sort of a uh, boil. Is, that, is there such a word, a dress as a... 
and uh, they seemed to have beautiful uh, floral prints. And she wore her hair, and she had kind of dyed red hair, but it was a, not really an obnoxious. It was a pretty color, and it was she piled it on her head in sort of an artful disarray. And, and she was an antiques dealer, and she had a gentle voice, and she was very kind. And I hope that, I'll, I never believe I'll ever get a gentle voice, but I do hope that, that I can be kind to people because I can remember how kind Maj was to me and uh, how safe I felt when I was with her. And then uh, after I'd been sober about 30 days, I started finding myself drifting toward uh, a certain meetings. And uh, I, I met a woman at a meeting one night, and she was nice to me, and the next time I saw her, I started to cry when I saw her. The reason for that is I wanted to be friends with her, and I didn't know how to go up and say, I'm Marianne, do you remember we met the other night? But I did know that if the newcomers cried, the old-timers had to be nice to them. So, <laughs> and it worked. She, she said, well, what's the matter? And I don't know how, what I told her. What, uh, but uh, anyway, she took me around with her and introduced me to people, and we went to a little party that night. It was a Saturday night. She took me to a party that a lady used to have. Every Saturday night, she'd have an open house. Uh, and uh, he, this uh, girl that was nice to me introduced me to a young woman named Alice who became my first sponsor and this is another thing that lets me know that there is a grace and a power here that we can do here what we couldn't possibly do on our own because Alice was younger than I was uh, she'd only been sober about 10 or 11 months herself her life I think was probably in more chaos than mine was and yet Alice was able to take me on to take me places with her. When I was with Alice, I felt safe and I felt welcome. I, was, I can remember one night, I was at, by this time I started to gravitate toward the groups that I still go to today. And we had a big meeting on Tuesday night that everybody went to and I was sort of sitting in this place and a young man came up to me and said, you know, I believe that that's Alice's place. And I said, I'm with Alice. Because I knew that if I was with Alice, I was going to be acceptable because I knew that they liked Alice and they accepted Alice and what she did, if she brought me, that that was okay. And I hope that I do that for the people that, that I uh, come in contact with, the new people that are insecure and afraid. And you hear keep coming back, but you know that maybe those people mean it, but what about these people over here? I had a little something prepared when I was new for when someone come up and said, are you here again? And I was going to say, well, they told me to come back. Now, I, I find it difficult to believe even really that I could ever be so self-centered that I would believe that I was so hateful that anybody would say that to me at an AA meeting, but I know that it's the truth. And I also know that one night I was asked to speak at a meeting by a young man named Ken. And when I stood up, I said, I want to thank the young man who asked me to speak. I knew what his name was, but I was afraid that if I said his name, that people would think we knew each other better than he would want them to. You know, I didn't want him to be tarred with the same brush that I was tarred with. Uh, because that's the way I felt about myself. And Alice made me feel safe and made me feel uh, welcome. And so I started to get involved in the group that I'm involved in today. While she was my sponsor, I took my first fourth and my first fifth step. When I was about 10 months sober, I asked Clancy to be my sponsor. And, uh, and I, 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 had, I knew that Alice and I were drifting apart. And uh, so she and I were trying to figure out a sponsor for me. And we approached it from every angle. We finally came up with the idea of asking Clancy. And uh, I had a friend uh, named Clint uh, uh, who used to give me advice sometimes. And he said, now, when you talk to Clancy, he said, I want you to say this. Clancy, I'm having a little bit of trouble, and I wonder if you'll be my sponsor. He said, don't make any speeches. Don't do any song and dance. And, by, and he said, I'll call him tonight, too. And it was after a meeting. And so I did. I, uh, I really liked this guy. I thought he was just almost a guru. So I did things the way he told me to do them, and I 
And I called Clancy up, and he wasn't home, but by golly, he called me back. And I said, Clancy, this is Marianne, and I'm having a little bit of trouble, and I wonder if you'd be my sponsor. And I can't quote him exactly, but it was to the effect that, that he, uh, he said something to the effect, I'm a bit of a dictator, and if I'm going to be your sponsor, we're going to have to do it my way. And I said, well, I'm not having much luck on my own, so I, I'm willing to take a chance on it. And, and uh, so that was, uh, that was it. We, we, we started. And I, and I thought, see, one of the reasons that, that I knew that I needed a strong sponsor that I couldn't argue with uh, was because I knew that up to that time I had been doing AA really what AA had asked of me because I agreed with it. I had no trouble going to meetings because this anxiety was so overwhelming that I knew that I couldn't stay home and think about God and, uh, and uh, stay sober. I knew that I would go mad. So I had no beef with going to meetings. I really had no beef with the concept of a power greater than myself. I can remember sitting with Alice in a restaurant and taking hold of her hand and saying, Alice, I'm going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him, uh, because I had been told or heard from a podium that that's what people were supposed to do. And that fourth and fifth step, it wasn't that much fun to do, but I knew that the people that were making it were doing that step. So I had agreed with everything, but I had this funny little feeling that I probably couldn't have put into words at the time, that somewhere someday I was going to be asked to do something that I was either afraid to do or knew I couldn't do or didn't want to do and that I was going to have to be willing to do it and I, I think I needed uh, some direction uh, that I couldn't argue with. So, and I, I thought, what is it that Clancy's going to want me to do that I'm not going to want to do? And I started trying to think of what it was and so I started, uh, I, I used to go to the yard, you know, he ha has a, the, the people come over on Saturdays and I work on Saturdays, but I took a taxi over there. Or I'd bum rise with people I'd, and, and go over there after I got off work. And I can remember one time a whole bunch of us took Clancy to the airport to go to one of his speaking engagements. A bunch of us, big crew. There weren't very many of us went to pick him up at 5 o'clock in the morning, but by golly, I was one of them. Because I thought, I'm going to throw myself into this with the same enthusiasm that I did for drinking. And so I was there. I mean, you could call it brown nosing if you want to, but uh, I preferred to think it was uh, being willing to, to go to any length. Uh, and finally he got around to telling me to do the thing that I knew I couldn't do. So I was having a little romance, and, it, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I always get involved in these things that are so intense, and I'll say to myself, I know there's going to be a terrible high price on this someday, but this is so wonderful, and I am so thrilled with this, that when the time comes to pay it, I'm going to pay it gladly because it'll have been so great. Well, you know, when the time comes, you think, oh, ouch. I didn't think it was going to be like this, and, uh, and I was at that stage, and I'd been pissing and moaning around for a while, and Clancy said, uh, you know, I think it's time for you to learn to drive a car. Well, now, this was not a transportation problem I was talking about. This was a broken heart. See, I, I had never been able to drive a car. I told you I'm a bit of a dingbat. I didn't mean to be, but I am at least a responsible dingbat. I have never driven a car, and that's why... Uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I, I'm very grateful that, that, that I didn't. Somehow or another, I never learned to drive a car uh, until I got sober. And then I told Clancy, I can't because I said I'd like to, but I can't because I, I'm just too crazy. There's something about me I can't do it. And he said, and I believe that I am quoting him exactly on this. I feel free to quote because I've never forgotten this. He said, you are too sick to decide what you can do and what you can't do. That's my job. And he said, I believe... I believe that you are well enough to call up the California Driving School and ask them to send someone over to teach you to drive a car. 
He said, you would be more like a, you would feel more like a human being if you did more of the things that human beings do. And if you do this, you will reach a degree of freedom that you never dreamed possible. And that's one of the reasons why I believe very strongly in sponsorship, because he knew all those things about me that I hadn't told him. He knew that I did not feel like a human being, that I knew that something had been left out of me and I didn't know what it was, but that all I could do was the things that I absolutely had to do. I could do two things other than go to AA meetings and, and get involved in alcohol. Before I got sober, I drank and I tap danced and I held down a job because those were things that I would, I had to work, so I did it. And I was, for whatever reason, a fairly good tap dancer. And uh, I drank because I had to. And I had gotten a little life together where I just did the absolute essentials and those other things which I was adept at. And so I knew that he knew that. I knew that he had that kind of insight that, that he knew I didn't feel quite human. And uh, when I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I learned to drive this car with much pain and distress and terror and then one day I was able to pack that car up and drive cross country to go back to Iowa to see my folks and take this trip all by myself. And I had reached a degree of freedom that I never dreamed possible. You know, I never thought I was going to be able to do stuff like that. I knew from the minute I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous that I didn't have to drink again. I have known that and believed it, that if I was willing to put myself among these people that I would not have to drink again. But it took me a learning process to find out that there was a whole life out there that I could actually, I didn't have to just observe. I could participate. And so that's why I'm a firm believer in sponsorship, because I believe sponsors can see things that, that we can't see. I believe that I have been able to see things for the women I sponsor that they were not able to see themselves, and, uh, and I am willing to do that. I am willing to, uh, to, to share my experience with them and uh, to make them stretch themselves, because I know what the outcome will be, because I learned to drive that car, and then when I got tired of banging into things, I learned how to drive it carefully. Uh, <laughs> When I was two and a half years sober, I, uh, I uh, did two things almost at the same time that I have tried to continue doing and that have, have helped me as much as anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is I, was act I became active in my groups, I became a secretary of a meeting, and I started to sponsor a woman. And this woman, I couldn't sponsor her, but I knew I had to. And she's got, uh, uh, she's got uh, she'll be 16 years sober, I think. I think she's, she's got 15 years now. Uh, and, and here are two more unlikely women you've never seen. Here I am, sort of a, uh, a pseudo-hippie, a hippie with a job, uh, and uh, 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 wearing long flower dresses and lots of cheap jewelry. And, uh, and here's this woman who's had a, just a tragic life. I mean, we're talking tragedy here, and on top of this really hideous growing up real poor and an abusive stepfather and her mother, when she, her mother found out she was pregnant, her mother had her jump off the shed roof. That's their, uh, you know, that was their abortion to jump off the shed roof. Uh, and this is the way, this is how this woman had been brought up and she drank and, and now on top of that she can't walk or talk. I mean, she can walk and she can talk, but not all that well. She has something called locomotor ataxia and she's a little wobbly geared and her speech is slurred. So she appears drunk when she isn't. And this is one angry old gal. And there's nothing she can do about it but seethe because she is in many cases. And this is what I had to work with. And I didn't know how to help her. So I thought I did the only thing I knew how to do. I told her to do the things that people had told me to do. I thought she either can do them or she can't. And she was desperate enough because she had crawled out of a bed of cat manure because she'd gotten so drunk she couldn't get out of bed and the cat had shit all over her. And she'd laid there for four days. And she got out of that bed and knew that she wasn't going to die. 
and that she couldn't live that way any longer, and so she came to AA, and she was desperate enough to be willing, and that's the same shape I was when I got in here. I was desperate enough to be willing, and from that day to this, I've tried to stay active in my groups and to sponsor people when they ask me to, and believe me, I believe this. I need a sponsor, and I still have a sponsor, and I talk to my sponsor, and I ask him for direction. But I also know that probably what has helped me as much as anything is working with others, sharing with others, caring when I don't care. I mean, I am a self-centered. I don't wish anybody any harm. That's, there's a part in our literature that talks about how we've possessively loved a few, uh, hated some, and ignored the many. And that really is about my case. I was desperately needy of some people, loathed and feared others, and ignored the many. And what I have had to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been willing to do it because I was told if I wanted to stay sober, I had to do it, is that I act as if I care until I care. That I help whoever comes along who asks me, who is willing to do what I tell them to do after they have asked me to do it. I don't go out and solicit people. I don't spy on them or say, no, just come to my attention that you're doing this. I give direction when direction is asked of me. And what I found out is that I have learned to love people I've learned to love by working here in Alcoholics Anonymous with people that I didn't even know. And uh, I've learned to care about people, and it's, and it's bled over into every area of my life, for which I am particularly, particularly grateful. Um, and uh, uh, I, I haven't got a big... Uh, I didn't live in a cardboard carton and then become an executive in a company, and I didn't go from working in a house of ill repute to marrying a wonderful man and raising a beautiful family. I was a, a waitress who had kind of weird little romances when I was drinking to a waitress that had kind of little interesting episodes when I was sober and <laughs> slowly but surely this program works in all areas of our, our lives and uh, and I, I believe that I, I've come to some conclusion and I, I don't like to go into a big finish because I don't think until we're laid out that, that our stories really have a big finish we have some high points and low points, but I don't like to finish on a big note like a, a movie where then we fade and you see two people walking into the sunset or conversely you see someone standing alone and brave or whatever. I think we keep on going and when I get down off of this podium I'm going to go out and resume living uh, and things will either be okay or they won't on any given day. So I try not to go into a big finish, but I will tell you some of the things that have occurred to me through working the steps, working with others and observing and participating in life sober and that is that uh, there is a certain amount of selfishness involved in the way I have lived all my life. I was never particularly interested in a domestic life. Uh, I don't know why, uh, but I wasn't. I never have been, and I am not today. What I was interested in was that kind of excitement that there's only one way to get it. And uh, so I wanted to have that without ever having to worry about the, you know, you fall in love. See, I had thought all my life that marriage was the price you paid for being in love, and I don't know, and, and that I... And, and I'm not making a feminist statement. I, this was a long while. I, I've always wanted to be in love and, and holler at people and throw myself across the room and say, I can't go on without you or get out of my life, depending. Uh, and I, I, uh, I've lived like that sporadically in Alcoholics Anonymous. One thing I have never done is put my romances ahead of my, of my AA activities. And I can, I'm very grateful to Clancy again for one thing he told me because it took me a long time to... Uh, to get rid of some of my old ideas. And he said, I don't know an answer for your dilemma except to keep your AA life in order. 
absolutely keep doing everything that you know you're supposed to do. Go to your meetings, give your AA talks, sponsor your people, and then one of two things will happen. You'll either become comfortable with the way you are, or it will become so painful that you will be willing to give it up. Uh, and so uh, gradually things uh, went along, and I had, had various and sundry romances. And I, when I was 37 years old, I acknowledged the fact that I am a woman who uh, will never bear children. And that had never bothered me consciously. And then one day I was in a doctor's office, and I heard a voice say, Doctor, am I too old to have a baby? And there wasn't anybody in that room with the doctor and me. So that had been there all my, all my life. And uh, it was just something that I had never acknowledged. And I was always afraid to acknowledge these things for fear if I ever acknowledged them that then I was going to have to either go to work in an orphanage to assuage my guilt or marry a widower and raise eight children of his or do some hideous... My, my friend that I mentioned earlier talked about going to China. He always thought if he turned his will and his life over to care of God, God would tell him to become a missionary in China. And I was always afraid that if I acknowledged a real part of any woman, women bear children. And if they don't, it's a little bit unusual. It's perhaps not wrong, but it is a little unusual. And finally, I was able to acknowledge that there was that part of me in it. Uh, gradually, over the years, I accepted uh, the fact that this was not going to be a part of my life. I think at the age of 47, although it's technically possible that I can be excused. And uh, what I have done since, since that acknowledgement, what I have consciously done is tried to be as nice as I can be and as interested as I can be in the children who are already here. You know, it's one thing to, to talk very intensely about not giving birth to children, and it's another thing then to when the family comes into the restaurant with the grandma and grandpa and the babe in arms and one tagging on the mother and the other one saying, Mommy, I want a hot dog. And you say, Please, God, not my station. So, so I have tried very hard to be interested in all the little children that come my way to whatever extent I can be to try to help little kids learn how to order food in a restaurant. Isn't that what a mother has to do to help kids learn something? Can, do I have to give birth to a child to help, it, to help him or her learn how to order in a restaurant? What about these teenage girls? You've never seen... I work in a restaurant now where sometimes people put on elaborate birthday parties for their kids. And I mean, it costs them some money to have these kids come in and order off the menu, and maybe they'll buy T-shirts for them at 12 bucks a pop for a whole party. And you've never seen anybody more bored than a bunch of 14-year-old girls with about $35 worth of makeup on. And their parents are just trying so hard to get these kids to show a little enthusiasm. And I go into those birthday parties and I do the very best I can to show these kids a good time and to get their parents to relax and have a good time. And that, I've, I've tried to make that my contribution and to be nice to my nieces and nephews. My brother has had a gaggle of children by various women and I've... Uh, uh, I told I bought sterling silver uh, cups and sterling silver spoons for each of his children. And the last batch was twins. And I said, uh, you know, you have any more kids that are getting silver plate. This is, this is it, or stainless. Uh, and so that's how I've approached that. And then I'll, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, the book is a funny thing. We, we read it and then, or I, excuse me, I read it and I say, when did they print that? And I know I had been reading something for years. And it says, uh, if we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. And uh, a few years ago, I thought, by golly, when did they put that in there? And, uh, and I, I had to... Uh, now, I have not done a great deal of harm in my life. I would not stand up here and, and tell you. But I have been involved, drunk and sober, in situations that could have led to a great deal of harm. Whether they did or not, 
I thought that thing applied to me. It says if we are not sorry and our conduct continues to our mother. And there's a certain excitement that, that, that I thought, oh, I don't know if I can live without that kind of excitement. And I thought, well, which would I rather do, live without that excitement or run the risk of having to sober up again? Never mind getting drunk. What about having to sober up again? And I'm like many people. I'm not afraid of dying drunk. I'm afraid of having to live on and on interminably. And so it just seemed to me that what little excitement, that kind of... Uh, and, and I, I'm not knocking it. There, I've, uh, I've had some fun in my life, but I thought, you know, that's not, the price is awfully high there. And I've never read anything in the book that didn't apply to me, so I thought that must apply to me too. So I have turned that, and I don't stand around and make these statements five minutes after I decide them, go leaping to the podium. And, and uh, this, is, this has been an ongoing thing in my life for, for several years now, where I have uh, been willing to say, I'll turn that part of my life over to God, and I will not push myself into a situation that I have to twist twisted around to tell myself it's okay. I don't know how, and I don't condemn myself for the way I, I lived for many years. I, I, I believe that I was doing the best that I could do. And now I believe that that, was no, that is no longer the best that I can do, that I have to be willing to grow, that this is, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about. We continue to grow and that I cannot leap, take a great leap backward into that situation. Another thing that I came to accept gradually over the years is that I am not between pictures. I am a waitress. Uh, and once I, started, once I started really being willing to do that, because I've always liked waitressing, and once I acknowledged that I liked it and that it would be all right to have it be a career, it became a, I overcame a lot of things that I've been trying to overcome. And I will say this for myself, that I kept on working even when it, it got... I, I just used to get so discouraged sometimes because I'd work so hard and I'd still make these stupid errors. And young girls coming along would be better waitresses than I was, and I'd think... You know, this is all I know how to do, and I want to do it right. What's the matter? But I think I had that little reservation still that it wasn't really what I was supposed to be doing, that I was supposed to be a movie star and that I could just kind of take this, you know, as it came. And by golly, now I'm one of the top waitresses at, at the place where I work. And, and in, since June of 1986, I've traveled to Chicago. I traveled down here to Houston. I went to Hawaii, and I'm on my way to New Orleans because they want me to help train the waitresses in their other restaurants. Now they take other people, too. Um, so they take some very young girls. It isn't that, that I'm the only person that's doing this, but I'll tell you something. It isn't that I'm one of them. Uh, it's the fact that I'm doing it at all because I am not the sort of person. You might hire me because I've got good qualities. I'm dependable and I don't steal and I'm reasonably clean and I can carry a lot of dishes, but, but I am not who you would choose to say this is a standard by which we're going to judge you. The way she does it is the way we want it done. And they've done that for me, and I learned that here. I, I, I want to talk just, just a couple of seconds about how AA works in every area of your life and in ways you don't know about. Uh, my best friend, besides who I've met in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I don't want to get too small, last month at this time I was home burying my dad, and he, uh, outside of the people I've met in Alcoholics Anonymous, anything I learned before I got here that was of any value to me, I taught, learned from my dad. My dad taught me how to work. My dad taught me how to take care of myself. Uh, uh, many of the work habits that I have today, my dad taught me many years ago, and, uh, and he died last month. And uh, I knew that he was going to die. It's hard to have been bad, but, but we had a little story of hope because he had an operation, and he came out of it like a champion. It's a classic case of the operation was a success. The patient died, and we thought he was going to make it. And through a fluke, I found out at an AA meeting. I had come home. I'd gone and been with him during the operation, and uh, I'd gone back to work. I'd talked to him, and I came to the meeting that night, and... and uh, I ran into one of my babies and she said, I got to talk to you for a minute. And what had happened is she had tried to call me in California and when I wasn't home, she called Iowa to see if I'd gone 
back to my folks' house with them from the hospital. And my mother told her, please find Marianne because her father has died. And I had just, and she told me that. And I said, well, it can't be true. I, I just talked to him. And for the first time in Alcoholics Anonymous at an AA meeting, I lost control of myself. I have put on little performances in the meetings, not big ones like I used to, but I've drawn attention to myself a couple times, but I absolutely, completely lost control of myself because I had believed my father was going to recover and uh, my dad died. And uh, so I got on the plane. People were very, very kind to me. And another thing, for the first time in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous, since I've been sober for a while, I had to let other people take over for me. I could not do a thing. I couldn't drive my car. They had to make a pot of coffee for, for the, the people came, started streaming in right away. And I let them do it for me. And I got back home. And what happened was uh, we all kind of rallied around. And the one thing that I was able to do that was needed was, you know, there's quite a, a ceremony to, uh, as I'm sure, suddenly now I hear where other people, I just feel so bad that there's been people who've lost their fa- uh, parents and what have you, and I've made a cursory remark about it, but I didn't realize what a wrenching experience it was until it happened to me. Uh, when the laying out ceremony is. And uh, what I did, I found that I could do, after the initial shock of seeing my dad laid out, was there was a desk at the front of the parlor part where we were. My mother and my brother, their emotional reserves gave out rather quickly, and they sat down. And I did what I'd been taught to do by my sponsor who started this uh, custom in our group, and that is I stood at the door where the people were coming in to pay their respects to my father, walked up to them, shook their hand if I didn't know them, told them who I was, thanked them for coming, asked them if they'd like to come over and take a look. So I said, come over and take a look at Tom. He looks so peaceful. And I was able to do something that I had learned in Alcoholics Anonymous to be of use to my family because they just simply couldn't do it. My mother's emotional reserves are somewhat depleted as it is. She has been rather depressed for the last three or four years. And my brother, John, um, had to bring his wife and children and he had to get in involved on the casket buying and what have you so he was somewhat run down so I was able to do this and I'm sure when Clancy started that that uh, custom of shaking hands at the door that he didn't know how handy it was going to come in for a broken hearted 47 year old woman uh, in a room with her father but it got me through that and, uh, and I'm very very grateful for everything I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous because it's come in handy at the most at the most uh, at times when you didn't know you were going to use it, you sure have been able to use these things. And I, you know, there was never anywhere for me. God, I didn't fit in anywhere. I, I looked like a fool in those topless bars, running around, dancing, and falling over my feet. I couldn't go anywhere respectable because I didn't know what I was going to do after I got there. Who knew how I'd behave after a couple, a couple of drinks? I just didn't fit in anywhere. And I fit in here. I belong here. I do okay here. I'm, I'm not an unhappy woman today. I, I lead a comfortable life. I. I don't want to be someone else. I don't want to be somewhere else. I don't want another set of friends. I, uh, I'm just really glad to be here, and, and I'm glad to be down in Houston again. I enjoyed that month I spent here, and I'm enjoying myself this weekend. I want to thank you all for being kind to me. <laughs>